You're listening to the Autism Weekly Podcast. Each week, we share community voices and bring light to stories that increase awareness, acceptance, equity, access, and inclusion. If you haven't already, subscribe to join the Autism Weekly family. I'm your host, Jeff Skabitsky. This week, we welcome Dr. Ellie Kazimi, Chief Science Officer at the Weber Health Center of Excellence. Dr. Kazimi is a tenured professor at Cal State University, Northridge, where she teaches undergraduate and graduate coursework in behavior analysis, organization behavior management, and research methodology. Dr. Kazimi joins us today to discuss quality management in the autism community, safeguards, and measuring results in the field of ABA. Her research interests include creating measurement systems that are accurate and reliable from a psychometric standpoint. Dr. Kazimi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for that so, introduction. No, it's it's my pleasure, but I don't know that the introduction does you justice because you have so many different roles that you're playing within the behavior <laughs> analytic field. And maybe I should just hand it over so you can kind of let us know what perspectives you'll be talking from today and, and what drove you to the research that you're doing now. <laughs> I do wear quite a few different hats, uh, Jeff, and I absolutely love it. It shows my passion uh, for behavior analysis. When I found it, it definitely changed my life. It's brought a lot of um, much more humanity and kindness uh, to me. And so I am very passionate about it. Um, uh, as as you mentioned, I definitely have different hats. I work at BHCOE as the chief science officer, and I am a full-time professor. So I have a line of research and simulation-based training. Um, and some of the work that we do is in leadership and supervision. And a lot of my work in organizational management, and when I consult with organizations, is around conflict management and staff training and supervision. Um, I guess if I have to say what binds all of my work together is I am in the pursuit of increasing our quality, continuing to show our effectiveness by making sure that we provide quality services, both in uh, our staff being competent, our supervisors being competent and compassionate, uh, and in the service delivery, adhering to what we know in best practice. I guess that's probably what connects it all together. <laughs> well, I mean, all those hats that, that you're wearing, I think, do our field justice because, I mean, when you look at what you want out of good healthcare, good uh, clinical practice, is that you want quality, you want integrity, you want transparency. I think that all your hats are kind of stacking up on all those topics all the time. So it's, uh, I'm, I'm excited to learn from you on some of these issues. And and look at what we need to do as an industry, what makes it so challenging for our field? Um, well, I, I think what makes it very challenging is that the heart of behavior analysis, the reason that we are very effective is we have highly individualized measurement systems. Uh, we don't just adopt any cookie cutter measurement and then use it across our different patients and clients, and we don't also do that with behaviors, with targeting behaviors, and our treatment approach is very, very individualized. The challenge that serves is that we can't then compare those, our dependent measures, what we measure individually uh, differ. So I might do a toileting program with one client, and you may do a toileting program with a client how we're measuring it differs so much that we won't be able to speak 
to those patients together progressing. And that I think makes it very challenging for us to speak about our outcomes as a field or as an organization. And it also actually does the service at a different level. While I think the individualized measurement is absolutely necessary and what we've been doing is effective for that reason, I don't think we should change that. I do think we need broader measures that allow us to compare across patients so that we can learn a little bit more about the bigger questions we ask, such as, you know, is clinic services better than home services? We have some hints about this in the literature, but we need to know what type of patients are more appropriate for one setting versus the other. You know, we speak to and ask for all this um, additional help from parents. There's research and Sigmund Eldovic and, you know, colleagues have definitely been able to um, provide more and more evidence of this, that when parents are involved, we see better outcomes. But is that true for all parents? What if a parent is doing two, three jobs? And, you know, we don't have the answers because we're not collecting similar measures. And that, I think, is um, something that we need to change as a field. Absolutely. And I think internally within organizations, um, for, for me to take a look at, at bigger data sets, and to evaluate within my organization, it helps me to identify where training is going mm -hmm. to be needed across the board. Are we excelling in certain areas of skill development or behavior modification, but not in all? And where do we provide additional resources? Are you seeing the access to larger and larger data sets starting to become available? Are we normalizing enough in our measures that we can start to learn from this on an aggregate? Um, I would say we're not quite there yet. Uh, I, I have some hope. Um, you know, BHCOE has been leading efforts and and providing frameworks for assessment, and we have wonderful organizations that have been uh, talking with us about the, the databases that they're putting together. And certainly, we've started. I think that um, you know, like with anything else, um, you know, when I started here at BHCOE, I was so fortunate that they've been doing this for five years before I joined, even because experience matters. Measurement gets better, your data analyses get better. As you begin uh, to collect data, you begin to realize how many errors you're making in collection of that data and how much you wish you had asked certain things a certain way to be able to do it better. So the truth is that we are absolutely starting and there are organizations that are doing a great job, but we're very new at it. So we can't answer the broader questions that we want to. The other issue is I love that you brought up that we could do within organization analyses because that's exactly what I would hope for for every organization is you can compare the experience of your clinicians, the amount of supervision that they're able to receive, the type of training you might have provided that differed across offices if you did. Um, and this kind of enables you to really put your resources in the right place for patient gains but within organizations, we might not have enough data to bucket some of those bigger questions. So I do think that there needs to be an agreement about shared data sources so that we can begin to ask some of those questions. Because unless you have the same, you have good numbers of individuals in each bucket, as soon as you start to say, okay, what about these families that can only work these many hours? And you start to kind of separate those within an organization, you simply don't have the numbers to be able mm -hmm. to make those 
comparisons. So I do think some collaborative efforts on the part of organizations together and contributing data for these types of questions is needed too. Yeah, I mean, it, it has to be a deliberate process. And I, I, as much as we want to kind of push through and come up with answers as fast as possible, it's almost that premise of, uh, well, if, if you have garbage in, you have garbage coming out. If you put <laughs> good pieces of data in, now you have actionable solutions coming out. And I think that the, the way that you all are looking at it, I think is from my vantage point, the right way to approach it is let's do it right. Let's analyze the data that we currently have. Let's look for any sort of discrepancies. Let's look for gaps in our knowledge set before we start to publish too much of what outcomes actually are. Um, and I actually, it brings up a question that I struggle over is in our field, we have differing viewpoints of what appropriate outcomes are. And I think that it goes even more so as somebody ages through treatment is that you're looking at pretty different outcome criterion in my viewpoint. It's as a younger learner, you're looking at developmental skills. You're looking at, can I get somebody caught up? As an older learner, you're looking at quality of life. You're looking, can I be happy? Am I contributing? Am I doing what I want to do with my life? How do you separate those two things? Or has it not even been approached yet um, on, the, on the larger scale with your data analysis? Yeah, that's an excellent question and shows how in tuned you are with the issues here at hand. I think that these are absolutely upon us. I'll add another layer instead of try to provide a solution because I think the solution is to be as open to um, obtaining the information at hand rather than to try to push or have a direction in mind. I think, you know, what I love about behavior analysis is we we don't go in presuming things. We go in to study what events are. And I really hope that we continue to do that even with large data sets. Um, I think that um, to add to the perspective you provided, something that was very enlightening for me was we meet with parent experts and uh, not experts, I, I apologize. We meet with providers as an expert panel group. And we say, okay, you know, service providers tell us what outcomes you'd like to see for your patients. We also meet with parents and um, autistic individuals and say, what would you like to see as outcomes of best behavior analytics services? And we expected that a good 80% of what these two different stakeholders would say would be right right in line with each other. But we actually found only about 20% was in line with each other, which is that there's between both groups agreements that they'd like to see skill improvements, and behavior challenges to be decreased. But our parents and uh, autistic individuals focus was really on the social awareness, social emotional regulation and growth, um, that sense of independence uh, and awareness of the, their needs in adults bigger social world. Mm -hmm. um, and you're completely right, that quality of life, um, but also for the little ones. I think that the language that families quite often use, which just makes perfect sense, is I just want to see my kid happy. Yeah. Uh, that's the outcome I'm looking for. I just <laughs> want to see them happy. Mm -hmm. And 
our service providers, rightfully so, based on their training, are really much more focused on those assessment games, you know, that they meet their goals of treatment, that they're able to do certain things for themselves. So I think that when we speak of outcomes, you're 100% right. There's going to be this large set of different things, depending on your history that you're going to have. But I think it's really important for us as clinicians to continue to hear the parent's perspective about what they are seeking us for and what they mm -hmm. consider uh, best outcomes for their for their uh, kids and then also individuals themselves. Uh, it's yeah. huge when you hear from an autistic individual. What I want to see is a regulation of emotions. Mm -hmm. um, you know, no, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, all of those pieces, and I mean, it's. I think that we have developed this this passion over the last few years for community informed practice versus just being strictly to this is what I learned, this is the the research, this is the science. Now we're taking this extra layer to say, okay, how do we apply that to the community need, to the community desire? And, and it's not two separate games. It's all in the same bucket. It's just being able to conceptualize your approach slightly different. And I think that we're seeing some of the outcomes we want, but without all that big data, which we're still gathering right now in order to kind of get to the point where we can make larger decisions on the aggregate, it seems the path to look at quality comes through accreditation. It comes through transparency. It comes through the ability to be able to show we are working on these things. We do them internally to make ourselves better. We're looking at all the aspects. Our structure is set up. So when you're looking at accreditation from your viewpoint and all the hats that you're wearing, <laughs> what is it that, that you feel is bringing the most value to an accredited program? Yeah, I think... Uh... You know, I um, think that that's a really important question because accreditation requires a lot of time and effort and it has, um, you know, a cost both time-wise as well as financially for organizations. So it's very important that it has value, that it brings something of value to the community and to the organization itself. And I think at the forefront is something that's very obvious to me, and that is we're behavior analysts. We know that every individual will behave under the contingencies or the environment they are in. So put differently, I know that when I hire an employee, I can place that employee in an environment where they thrive, they continue to grow, they love to hear feedback, they are helpful to all of the clients. And I know I can take that same exact employee, place them in a, in a culture or in an organization where they begin to conduct themselves not as ethically. They begin to not as much care about client outcomes. So I know that the environment and the contingencies upon that individual will matter in the type of behaviors I'll see. And saying that to me, that's what accreditation creates for organizations. Right now, the only requirements directly placed on organization behavior is by insurance companies. And those insurance requirements are really that ticket to being able to get billing such that it's not denied. Those are important, but those contingencies are not about being evidence-based and practicing what we do in adherence to our profession's best standards. 
to keep that in place, you need a third party that is objective, whose sole purpose is to come in and say, are you adhering to the best practices of our profession? And to be able to distinguish that hard work, that good work, because it's costlier, it's a lot more work, and to be able to distinguish when individuals or organizations are doing that and to continue to provide support. I really think of accreditation as um, better as, as, a, as, an, as an entity that uh, at least that's the perspective we take, which educates. It's not just to here to say, okay, you're doing a good job and you're doing a horrible job, but rather what is doing a good job mean? What are those standards of excellence? What do our parents need or what do our clients need? And how do we bring the best best services to them? Uh, and to be able to, set, to, to look for that, compliance to that. So. Absolutely. And I, it, it sounds like the way that you're describing it, it's saying that, you know, if you're looking at the organization and they're set up with that clinical viewpoint being the most important driver in all the decision making and that they're managed appropriately throughout the process, the outcomes will come. Um, and it seems like a tough job as an accreditation, as an accrediting body, because there's so many different theoretical perspectives coming into ABA, where you can't necessarily tell somebody, you know, you are viewing it more of a, I don't know, you have more discrete trial programming versus natural environment teaching versus I, you have more differing outputs and inputs coming into your system. Would it be safe to say that, you know, regardless of what theoretical perspective and how you're actually looking at the techniques you're using, that a good organization would be evaluating those on a regular basis, being able to make sure their training is adequate on all these procedures versus saying you have to do it this way, this way, this way, and that way in order to be accredited as an organization? Or am I off on that? No, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think that that's where coming uh, together and developing excellent standards matter because in developing your standards, you have to really make sure to engage the community. So um, for, you know, just as an example, BHCOE is uh, NC accredited. And what that means is that we have certain guidelines we follow in setting our standards. And a part of those uh, is to include the um, subject experts, such as providers, such as academicians and researchers and outcome researchers, but also to include parents, also to include insurance providers, to include all stakeholders, to be able to influence your standards so that you are not coming up with standards that really just um, take a particular perspective or you know uh, occasion the best for a particular group. The important aspect of, of that is that you're looking for certain um, best practice in our field. So we know, for example, that uh, patient safety is at the forefront of everything for us to assure that the patients are safe and free of any uh, coercion or harm. Um, now, you know, under, you know, certain circumstances, that's more likely to be questionable or difficult to carry out, right, than other circumstances. The standards have to be open enough to leave room for those variations. Mm -hmm. And that makes a lot of sense. And that's where I think trying to stay on top of the standards, on top of a field that is evolving, is that you look at 
some of the structure of what ABA was, not the, not the concept or science, but the structure of how it was being delivered 10, 15 years ago to now, it's evolved over time. Mm -hmm. So even in the example that you're talking about, it's, okay, well, we are trying as a field to make sure that we're taking into account our stakeholders' feedback constantly. Mm -hmm. So you've seen organizations move more towards compassionate care, even with the most aggressive of children. But we also know scientifically that some of the more intrusive interventions might be necessary at times. So it's when you're looking at that and you're saying, okay, as an organization, I can't tell you right now which outcome is going to be best. I can't tell you yet because we don't have all the data exactly what to do for specific uh, demographics of patients or uh, profiles of patients. Mm -hmm. But what I can tell you is in order to be accredited, I should be seeing you do this as an organization. What would you be telling them at that point? Yeah, you're, you're completely right. I think what you speak to requires patient level data, which is not what happens with accreditation. That's more, I think what you're speaking of is moving toward a really strong value based care model where you have patient level data and you can speak to what needs to happen for patient. We're definitely not there. Hopefully we will be sometime soon, but we're not. Well, with accreditation, what you're doing is you're saying there's a set of best practice, um, independent of the age of the client, independent of their level of aggressiveness, your individuals must be trained and competent in delivery of services to that individual. Um, your individuals need to treat them fairly and ethically and leave room for assent and also to have targeted things that are important to that person or to their family. Uh, you need to have informed the family of what it is that you're about to do. Uh, and they need to have understood that, you know, these types of things we can say independent of the age of the individual or the behaviors we're dealing with. And they are part of our best practice. Um, and so we can speak to those things specific to behavior analysis that you are making changes in environmental contingencies. You're not coming in with ideas about medical medication, uh, but that you are collaborative. Uh, we in fact have standards around, you know, making sure that you do medical rule-outs, but also work collaboratively with the multidisciplinary team in providing the services that you're providing. We know that that's important because rarely do we get a, any individual who comes for services that has not got a team of other individuals trying to help, right? So not knowing what those people are doing, not collaboratively working with them will not be to the best interest of the client. So those mm -hmm. things I think are, are what we look for is adherence to those best practices. No, and I mean, just having transparency to that, to know what to work on for an organization and where to focus your time is invaluable. Um, when you look at the, the field as it pertains to autistics and their receiving of care at times or supports, um, one of the biggest issues I see in our field is that the scalability of organizations is reliant on your direct care staff who oftentimes, I mean, if you were to look at how many RBTs exist in our field, there's not enough currently that exist in the field to service everybody who needs care, which means there's a lot of people entering into this field that are being trained to become RBTs, that are being trained to be able to continue to service people. 
where's the balance on that? Or is it all about the training procedures and the competency checks? But from an accrediting body viewpoint, knowing that we need to bring more people into the field, which is extremely tough, it's not an easy job. How do you balance what an organization should be doing? Where are the key focus on that entry-level employee? Yeah, well, um, you know, we um, very much provide guidance uh, on appropriate recruitment and making sure that the interview process, as well as the onboarding and training of the individuals, uh, prepare them for what it is that they're uh, going to do and uh, allows them, um, you know, to have the skills and the support they need. So on one level, it's exactly what you're speaking of, which is recruitment and entry, right? So, so if I had it my way and I'm a college professor and I can attest to this, I would turn the brightest minds, the most compassionate individuals that come from a history of wanting all of the best things and turn them all into behavior technicians because this is a great place to be for our families. And I really you know, believe in that. Um, and I think that on one level, we have recruitment difficulties across organizations. So we continue to help uh, organizations by uh, expanding recruitment, for example, to make sure that it's very inclusive. We can inadvertently have recruitment processes that are not inclusive, do not treat people equitably and result in some of our best talent potentially not approaching or ever being maintained by us. I think that there is that portion of it. Uh, and then there is the onboarding, making sure that during the interview, process and the onboarding, the individual really knows what's expected of them, being able to create those expectations clearly up front so that they're walking into the type of position where they feel that they 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 can do well. Uh, in fact, I've been talking a lot with behavior technicians lately because we do have, a uh, just like in any other healthcare service right now, we have difficulty in, in keeping and maintaining people. And, um, you know, what I hear from them is, is how important it is for them to feel like they're good at their job and that they can make a difference. And I think to myself, well, that all starts up front, right? It all starts with setting those right expectations um, and then providing them with the training that's needed for them to be able to deal with the clients that they have. I think, um, you know, an over-reliance on textbook or video training cannot really be as helpful because no one's gaining that when they're going out in practice, but really being able to provide them with the, with the support they need from a supervisory perspective. We know supervision matters a lot to technicians. Um, and so those are the things that uh, I think that the research tells us. Um, in our standards, we make sure that we adhere to best practice with regards to onboarding. Do you, you know, provide the appropriate information during that onboarding training? What's that training upfront require of individuals? And then you provide ongoing supervision in, in accordance to our best practices. I can see that third hat that you have, the embracing of the conflicts coming into a clear focus here because it's it's knowing at each level and having these conversations and being able to talk with every employee type to understand what their needs are. You can make assumptions, but until you know, hey, you know, I didn't feel adequately trained here. I might I didn't ha I had the hesitancy with my competence here. Is that that's going to trickle down through an organization? And if you're not having those conversations, I think it's really tough as a is there is there a community of 
accredited providers to, to have these challenging conversations, to be able to kind of dive into it? Or are you all trying to gather this information and maybe educate or train on it? Um, or I just, I, the vehicles for it seem like, you know, they have to be there. There has to be a structure for, for it to benefit everybody. Yeah, so I think in my different hats, I, I deal with this a little differently. There's certainly, I think, at BHCOE, we have benchmark reports and information we put out where staff have provided us with responses. We can see turnover. We can study what is, you know, the relationship between those job satisfactions, what maybe staff are reporting they need. And we put those out as benchmarks for our organizations to be able to actually read through and get a better sense across organizations so they can compare their own organization to others which is important. So hearing from your own employees that you do through the accreditation process, but hearing across, you know, where do I lie when I look at other organizations is also important. And I think there we do a lot of that. Um, at uh, In my other hat, I think I'll, quite often, actually, I do end up in situations of conflict and the conflict is usually among staff uh, in an organization. People are beginning to get to a place where they're blaming each other. So it's not unlikely for me to walk into a situation where leadership's like, go deal with those people and middle you know, tier supervisors are like, I've had enough, you know, I can't help the technicians. They just bring any live body here and you know, they're blaming up and down and then technicians feel absolutely exhausted and absolutely these conflicts occur because there are resource pressures on us there's real pressures on us we are in the homes of and we provide services to individuals who are at risk and that puts all a lot of compassion fatigue on a lot of our, our on our professionals as well so the situation is just ripe for everything to be volatile and for everyone to just you know want to blame each other and it makes perfect sense I think that that's healthy because, you know, from my perspective, from everything I've learned in my training, you know, the, the ability to say those things to each other, that transparency opens the door for solutions to occur, for active listening to happen, for people to start taking perspective. So I, I think that, um, you know, the fact that we're hearing more of it actually excites me. It's being, you know, making people a little nervous because we're hearing more about it. But it actually tells me we are now approaching a place where we're going to address it rather than hide it. And I think mm -hmm. that that's great. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's easy to become stagnant if you're not hearing the voices of everybody who's involved. I, I do put it to a little bit to the fact that we have a not only a younger workforce and not just by age, just by experience, but we also have a younger leadership workforce in our field right now that's learning those tough skills. It's hard to have the humility to know, I don't have all the answers. I have 200, 300, 3,000 people that probably should be contributing to the answers on a regular basis. How do I pull that out of them? How do I create the transparency to be able to get all those voices so that we can move together? Um, but that's, I think it's really tough. And I, I think as soon as you bring in the families and you bring in other stakeholders, it gets tougher. It's a lot of voices coming in and the skill is for those leaders to be able to figure out how to do it in a way where everybody feels valued. Um, but I, I guess that leads me to another question right now is that accreditation helps an organization. It helps with the transparency. It helps with understanding outcomes 
help an organization to be able to know where to train, where to put more resources, where to focus their time. Um, but it also helps families and the autistics themselves uh, when you're working with the autistic community. So what does autistic safeguarding entail? And I mean, how do you help the families to recognize the signs of that? Mm -hmm. Well, um, I think you um, are mentioning something that I, at a personal level I've experienced a few times with um, friends and family members who um, have neurodivergent children, um, you know, calling me up and saying, I need to seek services. And I, I don't know which of these is the better service provider. Ellie, just tell me who to go to. And um, it kind of really brings to light the fact that, you know, if you're looking for the best physician, you're told these are equivalent physicians and you might be able to go into client ratings or patient ratings about them, but you don't quite have the skill sets, you know, other than to say, well, this person graduated maybe from this place, you know, to, to be able to do those. And, and uh, you know, given the number of hours we provide and the importance of the, the services we provide, it's important for them to be able to go somewhere. I think accreditation allows families and neurodivergent individuals themselves to be able to say, to A, have impact on the standards, but B, be able to just look and say, is the service provider I'm seeking someone who's adhering to these best, best practices? Um, in fact, at BHCOE, we have an entire guideline for families to be able to identify those main things that they should look for in any organization that they go to, you know, are the staff credentials, you know, how do they know, do they have the right number of hours of training? And to be able to look for those safety guards with regards to, you know, what are their practices when it comes to um, challenges, things that they might be dealing with, like elopement with their, with their child. And then, of course, there's also other things that should be red flags, like if they don't ever see individuals collecting data and being database with regards to their decisions. And so we provide some guidelines to the families about those, but ultimately, you know, if I think of it this way, Jeff, it is, you know, it's so hard to be a parent. It is so hard to be a parent. And then to also now try to coordinate and understand entire fields of expertise. And then to be told, now go and ask these questions. We're just... We're assuring that we have highly stressed, highly burdened and exhausted parents. And then it's just not the right way to go. Instead, it's easier to say, you know what? We're gonna do the job. We're gonna make sure that these individuals are adhering to these practices. Look for an accredited organization. Yeah. So, and the, the, yeah. the way that, that you all are able to provide that, it, I'm looking from the lens of a parent. And what I would say is, if I were to go into a provider who I've been waiting for six months, nine months, whatever, to get in their door, and now I'm grilling them on things that they should be transparent about, but I'm now fearful that, hold on, I just waited this time. I don't want to lose my care because now they see me as a problem, which it should never be seen that way. It's You should have open communication dialogue seek feedback but i could understand their their reticence uh -huh. to go and ask those questions of the provider and i think having that that ability to have somebody else doing it for you with an accreditation board i think it, it provides that that not that you shouldn't do it 
but it takes a little bit of the pressure off you because now you're not doing it on all questions. Now you're just advocating individually for your child and your programming. So it, it, I, I feel like those safeguards are in place. So Ellie, I, I want to know where the research is going now, where your research is going now, because you've seemed to have a very good way of knowing and forecasting what's going to be important for our field next. So what what is it that that you're that you're going to be moving on to? What is it that you're going to be looking into? Where do you suggest other people set put a little bit more of their time and emphasis on, even if it's organizational data? Hmm. Um, that's an excellent question. I I think that um, there are probably uh, very different areas. I think we should put our focus on, and and I think that that's what I um, try to do in my different hats. And one level, I think we need patient level data. We need better outcome studies, and we need to come together to identify who's at risk, you know, under those to be able to really provide better care and understand the trajectory of health, our, our services better. So I think at one level, uh, you know, training your uh, staff to use assessments that are broader, that are, have norm references, making sure that we're not handing those and arbitrarily using them, but really have you know sought the training to understand their importance and their relevance will both enable us to collect the data better on that information and cross board be able to understand our patients better but it also will enable us to more broadly think about some of the things our families are telling us they want as outcomes so that we're not just goal focused and behavior focused, but we're looking at the broader picture of how those fit within daily skills and the adaptive skills and the social awareness and the things that, you know, neurodivergent individuals tell us they want to see for themselves. Um, on another level, I think that I'm super excited about technology. Uh, I'm always really interested in where technology can take us next. We take on a lot of individuals and training individuals accordance to best practice is nearly impractical. We don't have the man body and the hours to really provide everybody with those experiences. And so I really am excited about technology helping us in creating better simulations, better personalized systems of learning because people come to us with different skills. So I think that, you know, outside of technologies around data analyses, I'm excited about using technology as a means for better training of our individuals in, in that area. And then, of course, I think the third area is continuing to understand and really provide that organizational level and person leveled. Uh, trainings and what individuals need to be able to create cultures that can be at the forefront of tough services. You know, how do we put people in trenches to deal with the toughest situations sometimes, carry the feelings and emotions and disappointments and difficulties of an entire you know, family and be able to, to provide the best care on those, those situations? And to feel united in an organization, to feel included, excited about learning, you know, I think that yeah. that's going to continue to be an important part of what we do. No, yeah, definitely. I think it's so easy to have that emotional burnout um, in our field. Um, and I love the fact that you're you're encouraging folks to look more into, and I'm, I'm guessing the VR, the AI sort of training modules that are out there to say, can I simulate what it's going to feel like 
so I can get more opportunity, so I can kind of really immerse somebody. All of that uh, just sounds so intriguing to me because I think it'll better prepare people long term. Um, where can people find your information? I, I mean, you write books, you do research, I mean, you're, you're guiding the field and the industry and a lot of these decisions. Where can they reach out to, to find more of the stuff that, that you're putting out there? Uh, well, the easiest way is to follow me on social media. It's Ellie Kazemi. I am on Instagram. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm also on Facebook. And um, that's an easy way to know where I am, where I'm speaking. I do have, uh, a, you know, an email at BHCOE. That's simple. My first name, Ellie, at BHCOE.org. Uh, and I'm a public servant. So at the university, you can easily find me. Just Google Ellie Kazemi. <laughs> Well, we appreciate the fact that you carved off some time for us today. And I think that there's a lot of thought-provoking ideas that you put out on the table. And I'm, I'm hoping that it challenges both providers, stakeholders, recipients to start asking some of these questions and moving that needle forward a little bit further, a uh, step at a time. So thanks so much, Ellie. Thank you so much for having me. That was very enjoyable. Thanks for the great conversations, Jeff. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly Podcast by visiting abskids.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week.